In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. With your permission, Lord Jesus Christ, truly present with us in the Blessed Sacrament. The topic of our prayer is God becoming visible, the humanity of Christ. That's always our topic of prayer but especially during these very special days of grace where we try to prepare ourselves for the birth of God-made man, the infant God that is such a wonderful celebration and is meant to bring the very best out of the human person because as uh, Gaudium et Spes, which is... Uh, Gaudium, joy and, and hope. It's a document of the Second Vatican Council. Proclaims that Christ reveals our capacity, the greatness of the human heart, the great what a human person can become. He reveals the human person to himself or herself. What do we look at? Well, I want to segue with three considerations, and they begin with C. Well, four, because considerations begins with C as well. Contact, contemplation, and conformity. And if I had an hour and a half and not a half hour, I would give each C a half hour. But we're going to do briefly contact, and we're going to especially meditate on contemplation and then a little bit on conformity. This is how we deal with Christ. We contact him first. What does that mean? It's not very complicated. It is explicitly committing ourselves to speaking with him, to seeking, to seek him. It's committing ourselves to be focused on him. It's sort of like making a, a lunch appointment with someone. I am committed to focusing my attention on you over lunch. Or I'm committed to focusing on you as we go for a jog. I commit myself to be focused on you as I kneel down or sit down in silence, in my room, or in my uh, living room, or ideally in a church or a chapel. And I'm there for you. So contact is the first thing, is my first point. That's why Jesus says, seek. Seek me. Look for me. So that's number one. When we see, when we contemplate the child Jesus, what do, what do the... Angels say to the shepherds. The angels say to the shepherds, 
that I bring you good news of great joy. God becoming visible is, is the ultimate good news of great joy. And the first mandate from the angels, it's a very gentle mandate, is that they go to Bethlehem. This will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in a swat, in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So the angels invite the shepherds, well, go to Bethlehem and, and contact him. And once they're there, they start to contemplate. Why do I say contemplate? Because the Gospel of St. John, I would say, begins in the most radical way of all the writings of the Bible. No writing begins this way. Ah, a similar writing is in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God made this and made that. But here, it begins in a very curious way. All of a sudden, the term word takes on spectacular prominence. It's almost confusing unless it's clarified some more. All of a sudden, John, out of nowhere, he says, in the beginning was the word. What's that all about? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. Still confusing. And what's ultimately confusing is, and the word was God. So there's this word. There's a divine word out there. And that word is not the same as God the Father. By context, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. So the Word's distinct from God. I mean, from God the Father. I gotta be careful because then I'm speaking erroneously. And the Word was God. So we realize that what's revealed here is that there's one God, and that's, that's a mystery. But God is not one person. Or so far, he's at least two, and ultimately he's three. What, why is Jesus introduced in this manner? Nobody else does anything close to this. He doesn't get into his biography yet. He talks about this mysterious word. Well, our Christian tradition clarifies all that, that there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's three persons, one God. But let's dwell on this in Jesus' presence, because the word made flesh is right there, behind the appearance of bread, behind the veil of bread, but he's really there. What, what's going on here? Why is this language initiated in the Gospel of St. John? What's this word stuff all about? Well, let's, let's dwell on what a word is. A word is an, an idea made audible. The kind of sound that accompanies an idea is arbitrary. It could be... Swahili, it could be English, it could be Chinese, it could be Portuguese. 
But the common denominator is that this expresses immaterial reality called an idea. Okay, let's take this one more step. How good is an idea? As good as it conforms to reality. My idea of grasshoppers is as good as it conforms to the physiology, the anatomy, the behavior of the grasshopper. The more I know of the grasshopper, the more my idea matches the grasshopper. That, that's simple. Or, well, how good is your, how good will my uh, spaghetti with clam sauce be? Well, as good as my idea matches the ideal of spaghetti and, cl of, and clam sauce that I had in Naples. Or chemistry, use any example you want. Your idea is as good as it matches the reality. If it doesn't match reality, it's a improvements needed. He knows or she knows her stuff. What does that mean? Your ideas of that particular reality squares with that reality. All right, so far so good. Why is this being introduced? All right, just imagine, what is God the Father thinking? It is explained by Thomas Aquinas and, and St. Augustine. Well, God the Father could have only one idea, and that's an idea of himself. He reflects on himself, and he generates an idea of himself. That idea is such a perfect idea of himself that it's an actual person. And that person is called God the Son. All right. And through God the Son, God the Father knows every possible created thing. Because God the Son is God the Father's idea of himself. And so the gospel will say, I really, you know, the Holy Spirit says, I really mean that this word is God. He says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. So this word is the creator of the whole universe. All right, one more, one more, and we'll get more meditative. Why isn't he just called idea? It's logos, I mean, I know I have classic majors here, so, but... Um, the tra Latin translation of logos is verbum, which does mean word. doesn't mean idea. It means word. A word is, is an expressed idea. It's an audible idea. It's, a, it's an idea expressed in sound or in language. Why is he called word? Because God the Father wants to communicate with us through his Son. And that this is a sneak preview that this person, this invisible divine person, God the Son, is going to be visible. He's going to be a means of communication. He's going to reveal God in the best possible way to us. And what's he going to reveal? He's going to reveal the mercy of God. He's going to make the mercy of God human. He's going to stay God. He doesn't cease being God. But he's going to do something incredible. That the, the, the most outlandish fairy tale can't can 
cannot come close to this Christmas event. Because God in his infinite transcendence and his infinite power and intelligence will now become human and come to our world and reveal himself as, as our Holy Father keeps emphasizing, as the face of mercy. That what, when we look at the life of Jesus, I mean, he's the revelation of God. He's God with the human face. The prominent perfection of God in Christ is mercy and service and affection and compassion and fortitude as well. Now, in this, these rich words that the early church writers wrote volumes and volumes, just even on these words here, there's a gentle command here. And I'm going to pick, since I'm a Catholic priest, I'm going to take the liberty to pick on Catholics. And here we have something to learn from our separated brothers and sisters. I've been corrected enough that I figure maybe the good Lord wants us to contemplate this. And the rap against us, and it's a legitimate rap, okay? He says, you Catholics don't have a personal relationship with Christ. You don't dwell on his words. You don't deal with him personally. I, sometimes I would ask, we don't? Well, you show up for things. That's what one person said. Show up for what? Well, you show up for church. You say your night prayers. You say prayers before meals. You say the rosary. But you don't have a, enough of a friendship with him. You don't know his life. And they're right. This is what it's saying. God is saying, I want to talk to you through the language of my son who has become human. Still God, but has become human. And what I want you to do is deal with me through my son. Get to know my son. Deal with my son. Contact him. And because his words... He will reveal his words, that, that, that his words, his life, are very special. In fact, the early Christians were so taken up with the words of Christ, they didn't have, that's all they had, especially for the first few hundred years, because you were not allowed to have public ceremonies. If you did, you know, you'd go to the afterlife pretty quickly. And they didn't have a catechism. Most of them didn't know to read or write. There was no organized doctrine of the early church. You had the Apostles' Creed. Then you had a couple other, you had a, you know, a handbook called Didache, which means instruction. You had that for RCIA. For, but you didn't have much. And so people exclusively memorized the life of Jesus and his words. That's what was the steady diet of the early Christians the words of Jesus and the meditation and meditating on his words. And so if you read 
volumes and volumes of literature of the early church, it's exclusively commentaries on Scripture. Take your pig, John Chrysostom, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, St. Basil, etc. So, this is an invitation for contemplation. What do we mean by contemplation? Um, it's what St. Josemaria says here. And in fact, there's a little anecdote of Dostoevsky. Um, he almost got executed because he was um, accused of being an anarchist under the czarist, the czar regime. And he was reprieved. His sentence was commuted. I don't know if it was a bargain or not. Instead, he was sent to Siberia for seven or eight years. And um, if you have too much, if you're overly cheerful, there's a book he wrote called House of the Dead, which is his sojourn in Siberia. And he talks about his first Christmas in Siberia. So if you know, you're giggling too much, you're laughing too much, that's just what the doctor ordered to temper, <laughs> to temper your cheerfulness. And what happened, though, when he was in the train station waiting to be corralled into this train, this peasant woman had the four Gospels, or at least one of the Gospels, but I think it's four Gospels, and shoved it into the guy's hand and said, you know, you may find this helpful. He was basically an atheist then, and um, or agnostic. So he went to Siberia, and that's the only literature he had, at least for a while. So he read and reread it and reread it. And he said something Dostoevsky-ish. This is a metaphor. He said, if Christ was not, if the truth is not Christ, I don't want to have anything to do with the truth. It's a contradiction in terms. In other words, he was saying that it's that life of Christ that had changed his life, that affected a conversion. He's not ready for canonization. I have a feeling he won't be. But it affected his conversion. And, there's, and the gospel is always there in so many of his writings. And so, and what happened? What was his conversion? His conversion was all about Christ. And, he, and so, I want to get to know the life of our Lord. And there's something special in the words of Christ. In fact, let's go back to the early church again. You know, when we have our Mass, we say, we divide the Mass in two parts. The liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. In the early church, they divide the Mass in two parts. They called it the table of the Word and the table of the Eucharist. And the ambone or the lectern where you do the reading was shaped a little bit like a table because they had this strong faith, and still valid, obviously, that Christ dwells in his words, and that he's present, there's grace in his words, there's grace in, in reading his life. And that's why in the, we have that custom of standing up for the gospel, because we're venerating, 
those words. And the priest kisses the gospel. He's not kissing a book. He's kissing the presence of Christ, not with the same fullness as the Eucharist, in the word of God. And Christ reveals that we don't live on bread alone, but every word, verbum, logos, every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. I mean, there's a little, there's symbolism there. He says we live off meditating and learning the life of Jesus and reading his, his words prayerfully. What do we do with those words? Well, let's, let's see what St. Josemaria says. He, before I read this, many years later when his process of canonization was opened, they, many older priests by that time, because he gave retreats in the thir- late 30s and the 40s, early 40s, to many priests, this was after the Spanish Civil War, he was invited all over the country. And they still had the notes of that, those retreats. And they explained why they still had the notes. That when he preached, it was a little bit different. And they said, what was different? Was he, was it oratory? Was it a a good way of expressing himself? What was it? And they said, he brought the gospel to life. He made the gospel especially real and relevant. He said he brought the gospel to the, your daily life and that he was, and that you could tell by his preaching that his, his diet, his nourishment was the gospel itself. And so they kept the notes. And one of those priests became the cardinal, uh, archbishop of Madrid. And they, had the, they still have, many of them still had those notes of that, those retreats. Now, let's get a little snippet of what happened. When I, here, here it goes. This is his um, homily on Christ triumphs through humility. It's a Christmas homily, I think, delivered on December 24th. Whenever I preach beside the crib, I try to see Christ our Lord as a child, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying on straw in a manger. Even though he is only a child, unable to speak, I see him as a master and a teacher. I need to look at him in this way because I must learn from him. And to learn from him, you must try to know his life. Reading the gospel and meditating on the scenes of the New Testament in order to understand the divine meaning of his life on earth. In our own life, we must reproduce Christ's life. We need to come to know him by reading and meditating on scripture and by praying as we are doing now in front of the crib. We must learn the lessons which Jesus teaches us even when he is just a newly born child. From the very moment he opens his eyes on this blessed land of men and women. Now, a little bit, a tad more theology, prayerful theology. Our Lord is a divine person which means, that's why we pray the rosary. Because everything he said and did is for you and for me personally. There's no time with God. There's no limitation to God's love. So he could, yes, he could love us individually and in 
in theory, an infinity of people. God has no limitations. And there's no time with God. There's no past, present, and future. We won't get into that. Just trust me, all right? That, yes, he was born in Bethlehem for me. He said those words for me. So I want to I hear those words because it's, it, I'm, getting, I'm getting actually texted by God. Now we can use that word. You can add that. We get a text. Thirdly, we meditate on his life. And John tells us, in him was life and the life was the light of men and women. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome. And so then we, we fast forward a little bit here. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were not born of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Conformity. It's not enough. We can't get to know Jesus only by meditating on Scripture. It's absolutely necessary. But I can only fully get to know him if I love like him. I need to read his life, meditate on his life, and I need to little by little conform myself. Okay, now we're on to conformity. To his self-emptying. I could, I'm, I'm asking myself the question. Jesus makes a big, for, let's just use one example. Jesus makes a big fuss over serving. And he, it's very un-American what he'd said. The apostles are competing with one another. Who's the greatest? Who's the smartest? Who's, who's going to be secretary of state once Jesus rises from the dead? Who's going to be vice president of the kingdom when he rises from the dead? Who's going to be in his cabinet? And Mrs. Zebedee tries to get a little bit of a corner on the market there and gets to Jesus before the rest. The others get ticked off because uh, they got there first and, you know, John is trying to steal Peter's job. You know, or both of them are, James and John. One in his right hand, one in his left hand. That makes, you know, and then poor Peter's holding, holding the bag. He's supposed to be the Pope, but, you know, Mrs. Zebedee got to Jesus and now plans are potentially going to change. They're not. Um, and then Jesus says, well, the greatest among you must be your servant. And, you know, if we're going to take it literally, the greatest among you has to be your slave. You see, this doesn't work like the world of the Gentiles. And then he'll get even more radical. Now, how many of us, I'm talking to myself right now, take those words seriously, we, can, we, we, we conjure that scene of foot washing, for example. He's washing feet. And then he says, I want you to be really good foot washers, he's telling his apostles. I want you to do this. And blessed are you if you do this. That's part of his self-emptying. And then he talks, he says, you want to be my disciple? You need to deny yourself, and you need to take up your cross. And you have to forgive 70, I mean, you know, the, the, the bar is very high. But by meditating and contacting him, I can imperfectly, 
with mistakes and sins and flaws. I can conform myself, but until I start sharing in his self-emptying, I don't, I can't really have a strong relationship with him because that's who he is. He's love incarnate. And only, and, and it's, it's a very specialized love. It's not, you know, a generic love. It's a love of self-giving. That's what agape means. And it's John who gives God that one word definition. And so the baby, and we see it right, right from the get-go, it's, he's giving of himself as a baby under harsh conditions, rejected in the end. He's on display for the shepherds. He's on display for the Magi. They get energized when they see him. So those three elements are necessary in, in nourishing myself with that word of God. And it's not a question to get self-absorbed. That's not the point of this quick example. But uh, I'm, I'm a little bit on a roll with happy people or happy-looking people. I'm, I think I'm about four for five. You know, when someone's smiling, I, I take advantage of my collar. And, and I mean it. I'm not being un, uh, insincere. I say, well, you know, thank you for your joy. It's helpful to see you joyful. And four out of five have said the same thing over a course of three or four years. I've done this in Jiffy Lube. I've done this in, behind a reception desk. I've done this in a hospital. And they've all said the same thing. It's uncanny. I should have typed. I, I should have videoed it so you think you realize I'm not losing my mind. They said, I pray, I meditate on scripture. I, I read my scriptures. I pray with my scriptures. One did not. Uh, this particular woman said she was behind. A, I was trying to get a cup of coffee, and I, she said, I said, well, thank you for your joy. She said, well, how can you not be joyful with this great hot chocolate we have here? So anyway, <laughs> so I'm, I'm four for five here, okay? Um, so, and it's all because he is, he, he, my words are spirit and life. And Jesus says, okay, you have to walk with me. He used that word, you know, yeah, meditate on my life. That, that's what word is. Word, I, I hear word, I dwell on what is said to me. That's what it is. But I need to practice what Jesus says and what Jesus does. And to that degree, I do that. To that degree, I get to know him. And so we turn our attention to Mary, who's our paradigm in contemplating Christ. Obviously, she's in contact with him. She incarnated. He was incarnated in her womb. Augustine said she was already conceived spiritually before because of her holiness. And we, we, we see her meditating in the Annunciation event and throughout the Gospel. And we see her also giving of herself. She meditates and then gives herself, empties herself. And that's the, one, that's the phrase definition St. Paul gives about Christ. He emptied himself. And Mary empties herself, and therefore she conceives our Lord. And we ask her to pray for us so that we learn the art of meditating on his life and the art of conforming our actions little by little to his life as well. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. 
my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.